in the history of thinking about life, the most dangerous and often wrong statement is life can only do X or life can never do Y. And those typically turn out to be very wrong. after Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species. Upsetting centuries of certainty about the history of life, he wrote a now-famous letter to Joseph Dalton Hooker, British botanist and advocate of evolutionary theory. But if, and oh, what a big if, Darwin's letter reads, we could conceive in some warm little pond with all sorts of ammonia and phosphoric salts, light, heat, electricity, etc. present, that a protein compound was chemically formed, ready to undergo still more complex changes. That was 1871. Nearly 150 years hence, humankind has worked out the details of the evolutionary process to exquisite depth and resolution. But abiogenesis, the origins of life, remains one of the greatest mysteries of our world. Fierce theoretical debates rage on between those who think life got its start in deep-sea hydrothermal vents and those who think it started in some warm little pond, not to mention more heterodox hypotheses. The consequences are enormous, shaping plans for interplanetary exploration, changing our approach to medicine, and maybe foremost, settling the existential question of what life is in the first place. Welcome to Complexity, official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute, the world's foremost complex systems science research organization. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and each week we'll bring you with us for far-reaching conversations with our worldwide network of researchers, rigorous scientists and mathematicians, philosophers and artists, developing new frameworks, tools, and theories to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This is a show about your world and the people who have dedicated their lives to exploring and explaining its emergent order, their stories, research, and insights. Join us for an adventure into complexity. This week's episode was recorded live at the Santa Fe Institute's Interplanetary Festival in June 2019. The panel features evolutionary theorist David Krakauer, president of SFI, biochemist Sarah Maurer, assistant professor at Central Connecticut State University, and SFI professor Chris Kempis, who works on biological scaling laws. In this panel, we present a spectrum of perspectives on the origins of life debate and speak to the importance of presenting this unsettled science as itself an evolutionary object. Welcome, everybody. This is uh, exciting. I know that Jenna just named everyone, but we'll go down... And everybody can have a, an opportunity to introduce themselves real quickly, and then we will get into the meat of this especially tricky issue. So I'm Michael Garfield, and I run Santa Fe Institute's social media. Yep, I'm David Krakow. I'm the president of Institute, and I work on the evolution of intelligence and stupidity on Earth. <laughs> I'm Chris Kempis. I'm a professor at the Santa Fe Institute. Um, I think a lot about how the physical laws interact with biology, um, how we find systematic patterns and laws um, across all of life. 
I'm Sarah Maurer. I'm an associate professor of chemistry and biochemistry um, from Connecticut, Central Connecticut State University. Um, and I do a lot of wet lab chemistry, so I build simple models of cells and look at what kind of lifelike properties they have. So what we have here on the panel is a, is a, a, a rather diverse uh, group of perspectives on all of the different aspects of this this sort of ur problem of biology, which is where does it even come from? Uh, what are we even describing when we describe this? You know, this this question, as you know, Schrodinger puts it. You know, what is life? Right, right. And this is still a question that's contested. So I think it would be interesting to hear from each of you. Why do you think that this particular question of the origins of life has been so resistant to a clean answer? You know, why, why is it that we're still working on this after 60 years of really pushing on this question? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, well, so there's, there's many reasons it's been a hard question. Um, I think in general, life has been a hard question. So even you know, until very recently, we often thought about life as uh, very different forms, lots of individual species, before we had a, an understanding of DNA and genetics and the central dogma of molecular biology. Thinking about life was much more confused. Before Darwin even, thinking about life was much more confused. So I'd say in general we've struggled with trying to define or think about what life actually is and, and what are the right lenses to use for it. And then in thinking about an origin, I think what becomes very challenging is how do you deal with the huge expanses of time if we want to think about the specific origin of life to our, our current form and what that trajectory has looked like. And then there are very hard problems about how do you go from a completely abiotic world to something simple and evolving to all the way up to the very complicated molecular machines and, and machines that we have as single cells. And so I think it's you know, huge expanses of time and then certain types of transitions that we don't have good ways of talking about, thinking about, um, defining. I also think that it's really challenging because we only have this one sample of life. And so it's really hard to understand how you could do anything from one example. Um, and so we're really struggling with even knowing what parts of life are a requirement for early life or for like the first living things and what parts of life that we see today are from a long evolutionary trajectory that we develop over time and really aren't necessary for something to actually be alive per se. Um, and so I think finding a second instance of life will be the best way that we can actually develop the theory of life. Yeah, I, I come back a little. So the first point to make is that some of the terms that we use most frequently that we deploy in everyday life are actually the hardest to understand. And so love, for example, or hate, um, or consciousness, or life. Uh, and so it turns out, somewhat paradoxically, that some of the more technical terms that we use are easy, and the terms that we use that represent averages of opinions like life um, are difficult. So that's one point to make, so it's a little bit counterintuitive, I think. But broadly speaking, there are two schools here. One you could call the biological naturalists. The biological naturalists, and Sarah might be one, um, tend to think that life evolved only once, and that fundamentally understanding life underst means understanding the particular contingent chemistry of life that's metabolic, replicating, open-ended, evolvable. 
the other school, which I am a member, and Chris might be somewhere in the middle, uh, are the functionalists. And we believe that life is a self-propagating computational element that has much more to do with information than it has to do with chemistry. And that we've created life countless numbers of times. Every time you open your computer, you generate life de novo when you run code. And the fact that it depends on the energy we supply is no different from the fact that life on Earth depends on the energy the sun supplies. So it's worth bearing that in mind. There are, if you like, computational theories of life and chemical theories of life. And I think one of the problems of the field is it's been dominated by the chemical perspective that's trying to look for the unique conditions of the early Earth uh, rather than be a little bit more expansive and ask what the general principles are that you could observe anywhere under conditions that even prevail today in modern Earth. So that would be where I guess the only thing that I would append is that there has never been a computer that was not made by a living thing, and so we might consider that computers are just a next step of evolution of the only life that we know, and maybe it has a different type of information, but it is really just an extension of earthlings and so is it really making life every time you turn on a computer or is it just like giving birth that's an interesting point that leads into this question that i had in high school biology when my teacher said okay viruses are not alive this doesn't count because they require a host in order to reproduce right they require a context and i was like wait a 14 i was like wait a minute i require a spacesuit if I leave the atmosphere, you know, I require this complex supply chain that produces all of this food. And even if I'm growing all my own food, I still require a microbiome to digest it. So this question of context, I think, is an interesting one. And, you know, given that all your work is being done in, like you said, a wet lab, I'm curious how each of you think about the role of context, closure, constraint, and a sort of distributed, I don't know, support or intelligence of the environment in this question, especially given that so much of the investigation in this particular topic is treating this issue as though it, it's like a carryover of the sort of spontaneous generation of the ancient world, this notion you can just like leave meat in a jar and it'll grow flies, you know? So like, where does the context fit into this investigation? Great, so I'll start. I'll, I think for me, there's no problem with viruses. Um, and I think David would agree with this, but you know, for for me, a virus is a living thing that has a very complicated ecology, has a very complicated environment that it needs for its own replication and so forth. That actually turns out to be true for most organisms that we know. So one of the great surprises of um, microbial ecology has been if you take almost any bacterium, say, from an environment, the likelihood that you can figure out how to culture that in a lab is very low. And so the, the types of things that we regularly uh, grow in laboratory conditions are things that have very simple environments and we sort of understand what to do, but that's not true for most organisms. We can't figure out sort of the set of contingencies they need from their environment to exist. And so I think, you know, that's one of the fundamental pieces that we need to think about for life at any scale is what is the connection between um, the living thing and its contingencies with some sort of environment. And that really doesn't matter if you're talking about a molecular virus or some sort of other uh, living process like cultural evolution or something like that. It really is about the thing that is replicating and existing and evolving and the types of environmental conditions it needs for that to occur. Yeah, I mean, so we, so we and something Chris and I work on several years ago, developed a mathematical theory for this. And 
one of the ways you make progress in science, or in, I guess in thinking, is you take a concept like life and you get rid of it, and you replace it with its constituent parts. And so we choose not to talk about life, and you can talk about things like autonomy or minimality. And that's the spectrum that, that Chris is describing. I think this is extremely dangerous to think of life as autonomous and something you can build, because it eradicates the need to understand the ecological dependencies exactly that Chris is talking about. It's one of the ethical implications of which is to imagine that you can live on a planet with just one species, namely us. So life is an ecological phenomena, and if there's any ever going to be a biological definition of life, it's going to have to be a whole planet. And uh, it's quite interesting, if you look at a textbook on life, it never considers the ecological network. It, it, it will always say replication, metabolism, and so forth, but it's to miss the point. So a virus makes very clear that the completion of the life cycle requires a huge number of host factors, and that's no different from the huge number of ecological services and factors that we require to complete our life cycle. So actually, to think of ourselves as a virus would be extremely useful. I don't mean that in a parasitical sense, but just in terms of the context that Mike was alluding to. I think that's true, that we, when we talk about life, we have to be talking about life from a, the context of the entire planet, and you can't... I studied honeybees for a short period of time, and a single worker honeybee will never be able to reproduce, right? It lives for a very short time, and it gathers resources for the hive, and I had a lot of struggles when I was, you know, 21 and murdering honeybees every day about whether or not I was killing a living thing, because it didn't really feel that way in, the, in a lot of the really definitive biological terms but I do think that when we look at something and say is this living or not like an individual single instance of whether something is alive or not that we as humans have like this gut reaction to whether or not that's true and that shapes a lot of our interaction culturally with each other and also the dialogues that are occurring between biologists and between different fields, right? So physicists talk about life in a very different way just because of the way that they look at something and have that gut reaction, is this alive or not? Um, and so I think that it is challenging in a lot of ways to, to do interdisciplinary work and to really contextualize what your experiment will be addressing or what your work is really trying to achieve just because there is such a different um, yeah, a different feeling about it or a different sociology behind it. Can I just add yeah. sorry, but, so another way to say this is and it's maybe a little bit gobbledygooky here but transient forms of matter that exist in this ecological network that manifest agency that is, have purpose and function, we tend to confuse with life. Whereas we should be conferring the life property on the entire graph. But what we're really doing is, in all of these experiments, is doing experiments on the nature of agency. And it's an important element of nodes in that living graph, but it's not life itself. Sarah, do you understand the work that you're doing in terms of understanding the chemical basis for agency? Or, I mean, what is your... As you said, you know, you're, you're kind of on the, the side that life is appinned to a particular uh, chemical uh, instantiation, right? I, I think that we're all saying that, yeah. right? That yeah. it is really dependent on the exact conditions of Earth right now. I think agency is very far from where my experiments are. So my experiments are maybe building that 
the lines on the graph that you would then plot, right? So we're just really building the chemical context for life to evolve in, um, and I in to to actually generate that that next step. So I don't think that I would say I have any agents in my system, um, and that. Uh, I can get things that will have transient properties that could be considered life or individuals that have those things that we're looking for, but we are still very far from having a single agent that could be made mm-hmm. in any context. Something I haven't heard uh, raised in this discussion so far is the thermodynamics of life, you know, which I think bridges a number of disciplines. There's a sort of growing... I don't know, momentum around this idea that life is a sort of thermodynamic inevitability because of the way that metabolisms come together and dissipate energy more effectively in a system. I'm curious what your thoughts on on that position, you know, whether you see, like, for example, is is there such a thing as anti-entropy? Is that what life is doing? Is life cutting against that current of the second law or not? And in what ways might it not be? I mean, I think one way to break that question down is to ask, under what sort of conditions do you get subsets of the system that have, you know, surprisingly more structure, able to then harness energy from other parts of the system, right? So that's that's sort of the thermodynamic answer. I'm not sure negative entropy is the most useful concept because, I, you know, I think it part of this is just sort of very simply trying to count how many states you are and you, ha- you might have and think about with the likelihood of getting... Um, a very rare or complicated state in some par- sub-portion of the system that then can operate on other parts of that system. So that requires you know, certain types of energy flux for that to be true. So there's not so much that the states are destroyed quickly, but also enough energy that you can, you can maintain order. And so I think there are sweet spots for energy, but I think most of the, the sort of standard thermodynamics we would think of are, are sufficient for, for thinking about living structure. I, I think one of the things that you said was that it's an inevitability, and if that was true, then we would see it on everybody in the solar system, right? Every place that has a dynamic uh, space, we would see that there were signs of life, and I don't think that we see that, and so the inevitability of, of this process seems to not be true to me. I don't know a lot about the theoretical energetics, but um, I, I do think that life works with entropy in a lot of ways to have something that we perceive as more ordered. For example, oil separating from water is driven by entropy, but you wouldn't look at a salad dressing that is phase separated and think, oh, that's more disordered than if the oil was mixed into the water, right? And so... Again, this is one of those gut reaction things where we're like, oh, this is entropically unfavorable. Um, so if you're not familiar, entropy is just how how much disorder there is or how many possible states a system can have and how many of those states it is trying to occupy. So if there's one state and that one state is occupied, that would be low entropy. If there are 100 states and it is switching between all 100, that would be high entropy. And so you would think that life having many possible states it sometimes is working with entropy. So even protein folding is entropic, in part entropically driven. I mean, just, yeah, I yeah. build on this a little to, to clarify a slightly paradoxical insight. I, I know Sean's going to talk later in his podcast, and he has a nice example I like. But here's the, the thing that's shocking, I think. So the, the question that Mike is asking is, do potential differences that allow for the possibility of currents 
flow generate, as they move towards equilibrium, generating entropy, complexity. And one form of transiently stabilized complexity with agency is life. And the example that Sean gives that I always like is you go into a coffee shop and you get a fancy latte like drink like that has cream on the top and coffee underneath, right? So that's an ordered state. It's a boring one, but it's an ordered state. And it's easy to describe. Now, if you leave that in a room at room temperature, what does it do? If you come back an hour later, what will that look like? Huh? It's mixed up, right? It's kind of boring again, right? It's just all brown. And um, so you go from one boring state, which is staying separated, to another boring state. But between those two states, you produce vortices and turb because you're not at zero degree Kelvin, you produce currents. And the description length of that coffee is vastly greater in the transient than it is between the initial ordered state and the disordered state. And some people would argue that the coffee cup is maybe alive. <laughs> just for a short while while it's cooling down. And I might be one of those people. Um, and so there's this law of the universe that's as fundamental as the second law of thermodynamics, which is the law of complexity production, which is between order and disorder, there is complexity. And somehow in that state, uh, something maybe special has to happen to the chemistry to create agency, but maybe it's already there. I, I, I don't think we know uh, well, I'd also say another nice thing to recognize here, sort of building on what David is saying, is you know using very simple chemistry and very simple thermodynamics, it's possible to get many of the features that we're interested in for life. So if you have just two chemicals interacting with a flux of one of them, so that's effectively an energy source, and you have the right sort of decay in the system, then you will get regions of high concentration in one of those chemicals that then self-replicates itself and you get this repeating cell division and death and and you from you know a lot of sort of mathematical models would say that looks like what you want to have for a cell dynamics incredibly simple system right sort of boring uh susceptible to perturbations will go away easily um but that that doesn't take much more than very simple chemistry and a little bit of thermodynamics so uh, but in those systems, the number of boring solutions hmm. is much greater than the number of interesting solutions. So to this point, you know, the, the question of where do we look for an environment like the environment that we imagine life may have emerged on Earth is this highly contested topic. You've got people who are really, uh, they're on the, uh, the deep sea hydrothermal vent camp. You've got the hot springs camp. And these, these different perspectives, they have consequences for our space programs, you know, for the, the, the energy and the attention that we invest in, in different strategies for exploring the possibility of life beyond Earth, even if we're just using you know, spectroscopy to analyze chemical signatures of other worlds out there. So you can get armchair speculative on this, but I'd love from where you stand on, on this, each of you, where you imagine life may have emerged and why? Like, why would those conditions have been favorable compared to someone else's version of this? In, in the right audiences, this would be the question most likely to start a fist fight. Um, so, yeah. Some people you're you're feel, safe here. Some people feel very strongly about, like, their, their warm little pond, um, if you will. And so I think that, you know, there are a lot of a lot of people who are pushing something that works their their unique chemical system works in this one location and you know this has to be the one um and so 
I, I don't feel that strongly. I think that we can make unique systems in pretty much any environment. So any temperature range, any pH, any salt conditions, um, even if we're talking about different liquids, so not water, if we're talking about not liquids, so atmospheric kind of systems, uh, you can find interesting patterns and chemistries evolving in those spaces. So I'm very unbiased. I have very little in the game there. If I can build something that's cool in a new place, I would like to do that. And let's see what we can get. And that's how you avoid fistfights, folks. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I mean, I think my answer to that would be, I don't think we have the right sort of theories yet to say. And I think in the history of thinking about life, the most dangerous and often wrong statement is life can only do X or life can never do Y. And those typically turn out to be very wrong. So, you know, we'll never find an organism that lives at this pH or this temperature or whatever it might be. And so I think, you know, we, that, that highlights that we don't have the right sort of think, theories for thinking about life. And I think those predictions get even more dangerous um, if you go to, to thinking about where life might um, first evolve or how many different ways or how many different environments and how big or small that space is. Um, I think we simply don't have the right uh, sort of frameworks yet. Yeah, I, one of my favorite uh, remarks at this conference thus far came from the Extremophile City panel. Um, where uh, I don't remember it might have been Nicholas made the point he said if an alien uh, species or group of species maybe an alien phylum uh, visited the earth um, they would consider the cities the dominant form of life and humans their microbiome and I thought that was kind of beautiful and I completely believe it I'm one of those people who believes that Hamlet is alive I think that in the environment called the brain that is capable of speaking English or uh, Middle English, a hamlet is transiently alive and propagates itself by virtue of being such a beautiful, tragic play. So I think once you mathematize the concept of a system capable of propagating information into the future that modifies the environment in which it lives so as to benefit itself. Uh, there are a range of different things that could be living, and I just think we have to be pluralistic. I think a very interesting one is the chemical one. Another interesting one is the mimetic, cultural one, or the computer virus. If I work on intelligence, I feel the same way. The monolithic perspective that there is only one of something is, is, is a disaster, and I'd much rather we thought about lives, forms of life, than one. Uh, can I actually ask you a question, David? Yeah. So what do you think is the biggest barrier to us actually developing this model? It sounds like you think that we have everything we need to do this mm. and that we just haven't come up with it yet. Yeah. So what would be what would be an example of something that would really kickstart this this theory, this yeah. like hardcore scientific theory? Yeah, I think we have so I would say that we have the mathematical theory to explain what life-like phenomena are. We've failed at creating one special kind, which is the chemical kind. So there's probably a laboratory experimental challenge that I don't think has been solved. But I think the theoretical challenge was solved a long time ago. And I think part of the problem is hegemonic. I think it's that the people who dominate the field of the origin of life are prebiotic chemists. And so, um, but I actually don't think it's a problem. I think actually the theory of living systems is it kind of come quite a long way. 
it's but the, the experimental realization is so hard. It's a, just a, I think it's a technical problem. So this there's a oh go ahead go ahead. Well, I was gonna say, and I think somewhere that sits in between, you know, that pure the pure theory and the full chemical realization of a new form of life is lots and lots of interesting in silico evolution. So we we have learned a lot about evolutionary theory. We've built lots of interesting evolutionary models. Um, we've come to understand a lot about how. Um, what's required for something to adapt and persist um, simply by building simple organisms in, in computers and, and putting those in simple or complex ecosystems and understanding a lot about what happens there, and the theory typically holds up. So I think we do have a middle regime where, where that has worked very well. So another way sort of of posing this similar kind of question, uh, and let's limit it to just the chemistry of abiogenesis. The question is around the enormous search space of chemical possibilities and the fact that we don't actually even really know how big that space is. So I, we, were, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. What are some of the ways that people researching in this domain are trying to winnow down the possibilities, what we are actually looking for, at least in our own life history, if not possible alternate biochemistries? Um, you know, I think really strangely, instead of it being winnowed down, it has expanded and grown in maybe the last 30 years. And so when we first started looking at chemical mixtures, we were looking at ambient temperatures and really mild neutral conditions that you find most bacteria in. And maybe now people are trying even more things like crazy pressures and crazy, crazy temperatures. And so if anything... Because we didn't find an easy way in a mild solution, now we're trying uh, easy ways in in harder solutions or in weirder solutions. And I think that because this didn't happen in the last 50 years, this is not easy, right? Like, it's not that you're going to find the right environment and then it's suddenly going to it's going to happen for you um, unless you're really, really lucky. I don't think that thinking about it really hard is going to improve our... We've been thinking about it really hard for 50 years, right? And so is that that clearly is not yielding fruit, so maybe we need to try some other discussion. And I think that this idea of using computer modeling or even using some of the robotic technology that we have to explore, to not thoughtfully, but just like spam the the space and try try like everything um as best we can uh is maybe maybe the next the next mechanism and we we saw big jumps with computing by doing this right we a lot of our computational models now just kind of randomly try different things and see how we get to the best fitness and so we just need to do that with chemical complexity that kind of parallel approach actually almost sketches out a narrative, right? An origin story, yeah. right? That Earth itself may have been running that kind of massive yeah, parallel exactly. experiment. And if we don't do it on the scale of Earth, maybe we will never be able to recreate it. <laughs> Let's so that's terraform. Like a, that's like a, a Borges kind of issue, right? A map the size of the territory? Yeah, yeah I, I object to the question. Um, <laughs> I mean, the question that has to be answered is, is what's special about chemistry? And a, and a useful analogy to me is digital versus analog coding. So the way to think about chemistry maybe in this context is that the you know, Fermion statistics or the Pauli exclusion principle or whatever it is that gives you 
discrete entities, and this is something one of our faculty actually works on a lot, Eric Smith, what the periodic table does, it gives you Lego, and it gives you discrete forms of stability that can be combined into relatively stable aggregate discrete forms. What chemistry does is give you digital logic, and, and so with a very interesting combinatorial constructive aspect. That's the more fundamental principle, not chemistry. We care about chemistry. I think it's so if you can describe that concept in mathematical terms, or however you want to do that, in category theory, if you like, that's what some people are doing, um, then you can get at the deeper constraints about what would allow for sort of an open ended, um, you know, self sustaining process. And I, I think, again, I mean, we should turn things around. Um, it, it's not the contingency of a particular universe in which we live, it's something more profound about these sort of discrete, fault-tolerant building blocks. And once we can realise them, however we realise them, uh, we'll be able to create, maybe that's the technical challenge life. Yeah, I think building on that last idea, I mean, the, the interesting thing to do there would... I mean, what we ultimately want is a theory that says, if I have this size of a combinatorial space with this sort of types of possibilities, what sorts of lifelike things can I get in that? So if I design a computer system where I've specified a much smaller combinatorial space than, say, all of chemistry, what then do I expect about the range of lifelike entities I could get in that system? Um, opposed to chemistry, we want something that covers that, that full range, I think. Not to get super meta, but you know, this all sort of suggests that the, the study of the origins of life itself is speciating you know that it may be an instance like you were suggesting earlier that you know these technologies are sort of an instance of this process yeah i mean i think there is and all all sciences do experience evolution of thought and evolution of ideas right we we have continuously been updating our ideas on all forms of science, right? So this is a natural process. Um, one of the interesting, more recent trends, I guess, that I've noticed in origins of life studies is that uh, everyone used to just talk about RNA. And and I, my very first conference, someone, a graduate student got yelled at because he was talking about proteins in an origins of life conference. Um, and so uh, that is not happening anymore. It has really changed. And now we talk about complex mixtures and we're talking about RNA interacting with other things or maybe not RNA at all. And I think that we have pounded on the RNA door for a very long time that hasn't yielded fruit. And so now scientists are like, okay, well, maybe that isn't the right answer kind of growth. And that's, I think that is, that is promising because it's unlikely that there is only one chemical on earth, right? Like it was definitely a messy, a messy system 4 billion years ago. What do each of you consider to be some of the most exciting, promising research in this area, uh, you know, over the last few years? Mine. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, then you have to talk about no. your work in more detail. Or... Um, so I, I do think that there are a lot of people who are trying to make not just one thing, but make a network of things come together um, more from a more abstract point of view. So a lot of the artificial life work, a lot of the synthetic biology work. Um, and, you know, we say that we're trying to create life from, or like, modeling the early earth but the reality is that even using really sophisticated biology we don't know how to make chemicals alive right even using like if you 
destroy a bunch of cells, you can't put them back together, right? We don't know how to do that. And so saying that we could model early Earth and do this, I mean, it's very unlikely that that that, that will occur. And so the origins of life um, focuses that I think are really interesting are looking at how small networks of molecules that could have been around on early Earth can evolve chemically. So the, the chemical evolution processes that we're seeing are going to inform a lot of the research in the next few years. I think for me, one of the most exciting things is moving away from trying to design a very specific reaction that, that you think is the one that leads to an origin of life or will eventually, running that in the lab and then being disappointed, and going more towards what Sarah was just saying about bringing in more evolutionary thinking. So I think you know what we've learned from evolution in the last 100 years is that it finds surprising and interesting solutions. It's good at searching spaces and so forth. Um, a lot of that's been translated over into computer algorithms, like genetic algorithms, w genetic algorithms, which are largely informed by evolutionary theory. And so I think bringing that perspective to the chemical space is a very interesting one by saying, you know, let's build complicated um, chemical environments, but let's add to that. Um, selection and variation in an evolutionary process with the hope that that helps us sort of understand the space that that search is. So on the explicit side, I think, you know, the actual sort of chemical reactions that people are doing, that's much more interesting. And then I think there's a lot of really interesting theoretical avenues, which David has alluded a lot to. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, just building on both of those. So I'll give you an, an, an analogy. So I'm going to claim, and I think Sarah said this, and Chris made this point yesterday, that we're about to experience a renaissance in artificial life. So if you remember neural networks, I mean, when I was in grad school, they were laughed at, and I actually wrote, worked on neural nets. It was a joke. And then GPUs came along, and sort of Moore's Law helped, and Big Data helped, and all of a sudden, a technology that was considered sort of um, a little bit naive, these very simple computational models and nervous systems, became immensely powerful in modern machine learning as we all know it, sometimes called inappropriately called AI, has reached sort of a maturity. And I think the same kind of argument will apply to artificial life. I think we have interesting constraints on the simulation of living systems. I'm not sure exactly what they are. Will we be able to mobilize GPUs the way that folks in machine learning did just to model chemistry or chemical-like events? I think once we do that, there'll be this huge new field of artificial life and it'll lead to a new faction where people say, that's not life at all, you know, in the same way that folks say machine learning is stupid and naive and it's not really like human intelligence, thank God, by the way. Um, so I think that that would be my hope, that there's going to be a renaissance in artificial life. Any research in particular, like specific publications worth discussing in this area? You can talk about your own. I'm putting you, <laughs> I'm putting you there. Um, so I think... Uh, I, what I what I try to do is make these l small cells, and the really cool part about small cells is that each one can have a unique chemistry, but you can use you can use different unnatural techniques to select for ones that are better, and so maybe you're selecting for ones that are. Per persistent, maybe you're selecting for ones that are fluorescent, um, and that's a real biochemical tool. We tend to make things fluoresce when they do a specific task, and then we can pull them out of the 
the rest of the population. And so I think that um, one of the things that I'm really excited about that I'm doing is working on how you can get these really simple collections of chemicals that aggregate. They aggregate into really, like, when you look under the microscope, you're, you think, oh, that kind of looks like a cell, right? And so you can actually put these through rounds of selection and select for different fitnesses. And I think that what we're going to see is that as we get better at making these selections, so it's a it's a chemically challenging problem to pull the ones out of the population that you like. Once we get better and better at that, we're going to see that we can actually evolve specific features without actually having something that you would think of really as alive, right? It's never going to escape my lab and evolve, but I can I can like kind of force it to evolve. And you can do this not just with my cells, but lots of different types of small individuals. So maybe like grains of sand or little oil droplets. Um, and so instead of forcing uh, some idea of what the chemistry should be, you can kind of let it happen and see what comes out of it. And I think that that's a really interesting tool that we're going to be able to harness with the increase in our technological abilities. So as things become cheaper and as as our um, tools become stronger. Yeah, I'd say there's you know a huge amount of interesting research, and so rather than highlight that, I'll just talk about our own. So we highlight our own work. That's good. Yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, along these lines, uh, David and I are working on a paper trying to take a lot of these very abstract mathematical theories and apply them to particular case studies, um, and hopefully that will help sort of clarify this connection between a lot of the tools and framework that has been worked out and has a lot of power and how you start putting that into practice in, in very specific examples. So stay tuned for that. Okay. So all three of you have contributed to this new course that Complexity Explorer SFI's online classes. They've put together an Origins of Life course that's uh, a little different than your normal kind of course in that it is this unsettled area Yeah, so if you are finding this discussion really interesting and you want to learn more about Origins of Life, um, I'm teaching a course online. It's free, uh, complexityexplorer.org, and the Origins of Life course will run through through September. Uh, You get a certificate at the end. There's not, if you decide that you don't have time or it's too much, uh, you're not going to be pressured to finish it. So it's not, don't, don't stress out about it. But if you think this is interesting, go check out the course, because I think that um, citizen scientists can play a big role in shaping how we talk about things and how we bring ideas to the public. And it's better to have an educated public. And so the Complexity Explorer's idea of having these free open courses it's a really good thing for everyone to be engaged in and to at least try out once. Um, and this would be a good one if, you, if you're if you enjoying this panel. Do any of you have thoughts on like what it's like to work on a course that is so up in the air, so contentious? Scary. <laughs> yeah, I'd say very much in the spirit of the conversation uh, that we've just been having, in this course we've really tried not to commit ourselves to any particular historical story and tried to really present people with the broad range of tools and concepts that are needed to make progress in this world. And so that spans um, what we know about modern biology, evolutionary theory, certain sort of mathematical concepts, uh, some detailed chemistry, but we have tried not to tell a, a very detailed history. No, I, no, I love it. I, I, just to get to your point, the only course that you want to take is the course that's up in the air. I'm going to say the only kind of knowledge that's interesting is the unstable form, and so because you could actually 
contribute to it. If it was all rigid and fixed, it would be totally dull and you should ignore it. So the final is to build your own cell, right? That's like... <laughs> or, or write a set of equations that can be then used to predict the chemistry that is coffee mixing in a cup. <laughs> no, no obligation. Do we... Uh, we have time for a couple of questions. If anybody has a burning question, yeah. There's got to be an energy we don't understand. So the question for the record is from a, like a vitalist position, right? This question, why is the assumption that life has an Elan Vital, right? Its own sort of life force. Why might that be a mistake according to the people on this panel? Well, I think part of the answer is David's Hamlet example, right? So Hamlet is, you know, a certain sort of living thing with a a different sort of transients. And in the example that you gave, the ways in which you're dead are progressing in time, right? So at first, many of your cells are still metabolizing, they're still active. If you measured those, you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell that the body had died yet. If you measure circulation, you can tell that something's died. If you measure mental activity, you can tell even quicker that something's died. So I think it is a question about this this transience and what sort of environment is maintaining a particular type of um, set of states or, or process. And I think that um, can be explained uh, very physically. Yeah, yeah maybe a couple of days. You don't need, yeah, the, the answer, I mean, yeah, so I do disagree with your point of view. Um, I think Chris is right. It's, it's, it does require new thinking, a new theory, but it's not about energy, it's about information, and that's a very important distinction to make. So what's happened at different scales of your organization is that information has ceased to be propagated forward in time. And as Chris pointed out, at the cellular level, as far as you know, a, a cell in your toe is concerned, nothing happened, perhaps for an hour or so, right? Uh, but in terms of the aggregate computation that you think of as self-awareness, uh, that has been significantly compromised. There's no energy issue here. It's a, it's a computation informational one. And it's one that exists uniquely at a level of aggregation that you're aware of. So we need theories for that. But it's true, it's a challenge, but it's not about energy. I, and I think um, this is another problem with how we talk about science versus how we think about our own lives. And so you think that if you were shot and buried, that you are dead. But maybe if you had children, you would actually still be alive. So um, if there is a single cell and it divides into two daughter cells, is the single cell still alive or is one of the daughter cells the single cell or are both the daughter cells the single cell? Um, and so I think how we define ourselves being alive is only a unique production of our consciousness. And maybe if you had children and your information is still out there and the way you raised your children and that that is going through time, then maybe you are still considered alive from, a, from some perspective. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, to that point also, you know, I think there's uh, David Eagleman wrote this fantastic book, Sum, which is his, what he calls possibilian philosophy of, well, we don't know, so let's investigate all of the different options. And he writes something, 40 something different versions of the afterlife. And, and one of them draws on this, uh, you know, kind of pre modern understanding that you die when people stop remembering you. When people stop telling your stories, when when you know, and that there is, that I think that speaks to this sort of a 
postmodern construction of life as an informational process, but in a way that doesn't sort of limit the investigation to a particular contemporary scientific thing, but you know is able to you know draw on the you know the cultural diversity of these perspectives. Yeah. So this guy just died and fell in your lap. I'm sure you have a question. <laughs> so again, for the record, the, the, the question is, if life is likely, why don't we see it? And then there's been this conversation around the notion of a great filter, that there, there may be these crucial moments in the evolution of a biosphere at which point things are more likely to collapse and that we just haven't gotten there yet or somehow we've dodged all of them so far. And so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm going to fall back on there's, I think there's lots of probabilities in the Drake equation, which is really just a nice way of formalizing sort of the overall probabilistic thinking of, of getting complex life or communicating complex life. Um, I think many of those probabilities we, we don't have a good sense on. Um, and I've seen convincing calculations that bound many, many orders of magnitude in that probability by pretty careful reasoning about individual terms and what the lower and upper bound on that could be. So, you know, one place where we were very wrong, for example, was a number of stars that have planets, right? So it wasn't so long ago that we discovered the first star, I mean, the first planet around a star that wasn't our own. Um, and at that time, the thinking was, okay, great, we verified it, that this happens. Maybe one or 2% of stars have planets. And then that probability has crept up all the way to effectively one. Every star that we see, um, you, can pre you can make a safe guess as a planet around it. And so that radically shifts the probabilities from something that's maybe close to zero to something that's one. I think how easy it is to go from a single cell organism to a something with a slightly more complicated architecture like a single cell eukaryote to multicellular life that overall process you know again we don't have a, we have one historical perspective on that we don't have a really good general theory for that sort of thing so i think all of those probabilities or many of those probabilities are sort of begging for more general thinking that we just don't have yet I think there's a really expensive way to figure this out, which is doing missions to other places. And so if life evolved on Mars separately from the life on Earth, we might find remnants of it as bacterial fossils or something like that, right? And so um, we are planning, NASA, not me, I'm not NASA, but NASA is planning a number of missions to moons and to Mars. And so we may actually end up seeing without having to account for a great filter, we might actually end up seeing some of these life forms that are no longer alive, so remnants of life, and that might inform a lot of what we know about these probabilities. Yeah, I, I think Chris, I just want to build on this, it's just to hammer it home. So, what was it, like two decades ago? Yeah. We didn't know that there were exoplanets. That's 20 years. <laughs> now, what have we got? 20,000 of them? I don't know how many, tens of thousands of them. That's 20 years. And now we have to work out means of determining whether there are spectral signatures on the surface of those planets that correspond to what we think the chemistry of living systems is. I think it's way premature to talk about great filters. I think that I, I'm going to put money on the table with you as a witness, Matt. I, I'd say within a decade, Write it down. It's a sports person's bet. Within June a decade, 16th. we'll find out of equilibrium filter, uh, spectral signatures on exoplanets. 
that are consistent with life, even as we know it. I mean, and so I don't, I, don't, I think it's premature. Where does the self-organizing So, so if I'm to get your question right, as a philosopher, the question is, is life emergent or is it a quality of self-organizing processes wherever we find them? Which, I, again, I think we, we, we run the danger of retreading some stuff here, but I think you got in a little late. Yeah. yeah we, we answered that right at the beginning. Death. <laughs> but, you know, there, there's, did life emerge more than once? In which case, you know, we might have a, a, a problem of competitive exclusion of your question here. So if, I don't know if you want to try to take a different angle on it. I, I mean, I want to say one thing. So I'm very sympathetic to that perspective. So we develop mathematical lenses, if you like. And what that mathematical... It's a little bit like Giulio Cianoni's work in consciousness, if you're familiar with that. And so... Um, you develop a mathematical expression and think of it as a lens and you look at the world through that mathematical expression. And if you see nothing through that expression, you're not seeing this life through. And we develop a variety of such lenses and um, by holding them up to exactly what Chris is saying, by holding them up to reality, by looking through them, you find a certain kind of life according to the axioms and definitions that go into that mathematical expression. So we have definitions of life that are captured by these quantities that we think we will observe, for example, in computer code. And so then that would be, by a rigorous operational definition, a legitimate form of life. Is it the fundamental form of life? Maybe not, but it's a form of life. So I think one can actually answer that question very mathematically and quite rigorously. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think a lot of the way this may shift in time is perhaps, will perhaps happen in the same way that chemical thinking shifted throughout human history. So, you know, originally people thought water was uh, an element amongst other elements, right? It turns out water is not an element. You know, there's a there's a more fundamental chemistry. There are, you know, fundamental building blocks. But water does capture a certain sort of, you know, phase of matter. It, it captures a very complicated physical idea. And so there was something to that. And so I think, you know, it may be that as things become more formal, we understand where something like life sits in, in some spectrum like that, where there may be, you know, more fundamental things underneath, but there, and there may be more complicated sort of higher order things we use to explain it. But um, I think, you know, the phases of water is a nice way to think about how we might eventually come to understand life. Yeah. This is really outside my realm, but I think the, the one thing that you did capture is that when we talk about emergence of life, we often correlate it with or compare it to the emergence of consciousness. And so these two concepts are two really good examples of how really simple mixtures have properties that you would never predict. So that's what we mean by emergence, right? The chemicals themselves aren't very interesting, but they make these really interesting structures. Um, And so whatever terminology used philosophically to describe the emergence of consciousness, we would probably also apply those to the emergence of life. Well, folks, this has been fun. If you feel like you're unsatisfied, again, we're, we've got the uh, Origins of Life course at complexityexplorer.org. And then, you know, if you, if you want to listen to this again, we will be starting up the official Santa Fe Institute podcast later this summer. So just stay tuned. Follow SFI on Twitter or whatever you, it is that you do, and uh, we'll be sure to let you know about that. And thanks, everybody, for participating. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast. Thank you.